The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. Welcome back to another episode of The Serrated Edge, uh, the show where I am most definitely going to hurt somebody's feelings. <laughs> uh, and today I am joined by a, another very special guest, uh, president of relearn.org, founder of Reformation Seminary, author, host of the Real Christianity Podcast, pastor, and patriarchal Twitter warlord. Welcome to Dale Partridge. Thanks so much for coming on, brother. Hey, man, I'm excited to be here. Have a good conversation. Yeah, when I reached out to Dale, I made him an offer he could not refuse. <laughs> I said something along the lines of, hey, I have, an, I have an offer that will benefit you in no way. Please come on my show. <laughs> so <laughs> I appreciate you coming on. <laughs> yeah, amen. Yeah, I, I think it's important just to have conversations uh, that, you know, you never know how someone is going to be influenced by uh, the internet. And so uh, when I get an opportunity to go on a show uh, with uh, another brother in the Lord, uh, I try to take it if I can. And uh, I think these conversations are important and yeah. need to be happening in the church right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoy doing this. Um, for the last three years, I, I've done a show called Distilling Theology with my friend Blake. Um, and we've gotten to interview some some great guys, some great pastors, theologians. Um, and it's been, for me, a blessing. Uh, but I like to I like to bring uh, folks who are uh, experts and then bring them uh, to the folks uh, because I'm not an expert. I'm just uh, Joe Schmo. But um, I like to distill things down for people so they can really grasp onto some of these theological concepts that I think have been lost, uh, unfortunately, in the Western Church. Amen. So in May, you released some podcast episodes, uh, great ones I might add, uh, about whether or not women should be teaching other women theology. Now, I was always of the position uh, that women should never be in the office of elder. Um, I think that's very obvious and clear from the scriptures. Uh, but honestly, women teaching other women had not crossed my mind. Um, it wasn't something that I had been personally challenged with. And so when I listened to that episode, or the series of episodes rather, um, it was challenging to me. Um, now, I heard you out, and I believe that your position is the biblical one. Um, my wife and I had quite a few conversations about it. She affirms as well. Um, and so for those who may not have listened, uh, could you give a brief summary of your position on that? Yeah, so I did a three-part podcast series on, uh, I think the topic is, or the title was, Should Women Teach Other Women Theology? And it took about three episodes. I did the first episode expecting that it would likely result in an episode number two. And then it became such a big conversation in uh, online Christianity. Uh, you know, we had conversations with several other pastors and um, friends of mine, you know, even uh, Ali Stuckey talked about the concept on her show. We had people that were against it and people were for it and people who were mixed in between. But I mean, there were several thousand people talking about the conversation at large that started also conversations around biblical patriarchy and, and other, uh, you know, accessory, you know, doctrines and theologies to yeah. uh, this conversation. And so uh, the, the central reality founding kind of initiative of my brain and heart for this conversation was I started realizing that more and more women were interested in theologically shepherding other women. Now, I'm not talking about biblical womanhood. I'm not talking about uh, how to be a great mother or homemaker or wife or 
women teaching about modesty or hospitality or some of the stuff that you would see in Titus 2, where the older women are teaching the younger women how to love their husbands and love their children. I'm talking about women teaching, you know, penal substitutionary atonement and, uh, you know, the ransom theories of the cross and uh, getting into the attributes of God and the systematics uh, of, you know, soteriology or whatever it may be. Very academic theological uh, initiatives. I saw more and more women interested in teaching these things to other women. The other thing I saw was that more women, more and more women were actually interested in learning those academic theological truths from women rather than men. Mm. So we have this interesting time where more and more women than any time in church history are attempting to become, again, a theological shepherd, almost like a female elder in the woman's life mm. on doctrine. And, uh, and by doing so are not necessary, you know, when you say yes to something, you say no to something else. And so sure. you're, when you say yes to theological uh, complexities and, and more pastoral type topics, you know those those topics that I mentioned earlier are typically reserved not even just for not even for men but really for pastors. Uh, yes, those topics are open to everyone. Everyone is able to study God at that deep, complex uh, um, way. But you know we're we're seeing more women having that interest and more women having the desire to learn it from other women. So my conversation was: How do we view? the spiritual headship of women. And so we have three heads, uh, three forms of a head, I should say, of spiritual headship. It's either going to be a father of a daughter, a wife of a husband, or a husband of a wife, or a pastor of a female congregant. Essentially, there is no such thing as a headless Christian woman. Mm. Um, there, there, you know, even if you're a single unmarried woman, you will have your pastors and elders at your local church being your spiritual head. And uh, that's a systematic argument, but that's what we see in scripture. And we basically, when I, what I'm seeing is that there's been this movement of women that are trying to develop the doctrinal positions of women outside of their headship. Uh, outside of their, so they're they're essentially encroaching upon the territory and responsibility of the men in these women's lives, mm. and so that that seems to have been. Um, and I saw this as a pastor, and so I was approaching this as a pastor of my own congregation, where you start to see a woman in your congregation who then is advancing in doctrine because she's learning it from some other woman, and not from me, and not from her husband, and not from her father. And what this does in a marriage is it really causes a situation because let's just say that a woman is married to a Christian man, but the Christian man isn't maybe as engaged as he should be, and he's failing as a passive husband, and which is pretty common. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say this woman wants to go and learn about the uh, soteriology discussions around free will, the sovereignty of God and salvation. And this woman becomes a Calvinist. Uh, I'm a Calvinist, but this woman becomes a Calvinist um, in 
this conversation at a woman's Bible study. And uh, one of the women that's leading her through these uh, topics, maybe she's teaching through Romans or whatever it may be. And uh, she comes back home and her husband's not yet a Calvinist or actually rejects the doctrines of grace uh, and holds more to an Arminian perspective. What you have is one, you have a woman that's advancing beyond her husband's uh, theological guidance. Mm-hmm. which then puts her in a position where she has to pit her conscience against her husband's authority and her marriage. And so you get situations like this that you just go, you know, I, I've said recently, like, if you're a child of a parent who is less theologically mature than you, you know the frustration of that, right? You understand mm-hmm. that it's not supposed to be that way. You're, you're like, I don't care if I'm 40. I want my dad to be more theologically mature than me yeah. so that I could come to him and have these questions. And, um, and so whenever those advancements get out of order where a child is more mature than the one that you know, raised him or that a wife is more mature than the one who's supposed to be shepherding or leading or, or that you know, a congregant is more mature than the pastors that are, pre, you know, any situation like that is not good. Now, again, overarching conversation, just to be clear with anybody who's listening, I want women to learn theology. We should all want women to learn theology. We want women to learn that theology through the spheres of headship that have been given to her for the protection of her and the institutions by which they are uh, structured. And so we want theology for women. And we're talking about the biblical ideal. And we're working toward the ideal. We shouldn't be we should know the ideal, so we should work toward it. We know that there's exceptions. We know that there's uh, sinfulness and fallenness and weird situations that are going on in homes yeah. and families across the country. But we should be knowing the ideal and working toward it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that kind of begs the question, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where uh, we're having these massive women's conferences with these female theologians, so to speak, Um things like lady pastors, egalitarianism, what do you think is the root cause uh, that brought us to this point where we are now? I mean, certainly feminism has brought us to this place. I mean, we have, if you were to take chat GPT and just say, hey, give me, you know, every theologian, every great theologian, list them out from, you know, uh, the Old Testament era all the way till 19. 19- 40. Um, it's going to give you a list that is likely, almost, maybe possibly, completely, exclusively men. Yeah. And, and, and so the word theologian is historically synonymous with man, mm. like a male. And so uh, the idea of a woman theologian is uh, kind of a historical um, phenomenon. And so it doesn't mean that women don't know theology. I mean, my goodness, if you think about, you know, Susanna Wesley or Charles Mm -hmm. Spurgeon's wife, I mean, Mm -hmm. or, you know, Jonathan Edwards wife, I mean, these women know theology because they have incredible spiritual heads in their life that have guided and shepherded them to these truths. But what you have in the feministic movement of the modern generation is, uh, we have this, again, this desire and there's more 
uh, yeah, women's conferences. You know, Jen Wilkin just came up with a book called "You Are a Theologian," and she wrote it with a man. Um, but the, her name is is the the first name. It's not that it was like alphabetical order, yeah. you know, because Wilkins last, you know, yeah. uh, with a W there. But she she's actually the prominent figure. You are a theologian now. In a sense, yes, we're all theologians. I think R.C. Sproul came out with a book years ago called Everyone's yeah, or Everybody's yeah. a Theologian. Now, I think his intention there was to rally up the average lethargic Christian to do a deeper dive into biblical comprehension. Yeah. Um, I don't think that his intention was to make everyone a theologian in the formal sense. Sure. Because the word theologian has a definition. I mean, if you Google it, it's, you know, uh, someone that exercises critical discourse and scholarly level, you know, uh, writing and research on issues of, you know, biblical texts, religion. This is someone like when you go into seminary, you don't even call yourself, if you graduate seminary, you wouldn't even call yourself a theologian. The theologian are, are the people that have the PhDs, they're scholars, they know a little, or they know a lot about a little in the yeah. sense that they're focused, um, they're specialists. You know, uh, most graduates of seminary would call themselves, you know, maybe a pastor theologian or, and um, and so this has been, uh, the idea of calling yourself a theologian is just a weird thing. Now, we are, in a sense, a theologian because we do theology. Even if you're talking about biblical womanhood, you're doing theology. They intersect. Yeah. And that's why I had to create kind of these categories of like biblical womanhood, like devotional theology, and then like academic theology. And so, you know, biblical womanhood, I go, hey, all the women need to be doing that, teaching the younger women to love their husbands and love their children devotional theology, which is kind of the stuff you see on Sunday, the average Christian book. I think this is also a category where most conversations are happening between women historically, and, and it's about the gospel. It's about the stuff that you would see in catechisms. And, and, then, um, and then academic theology is the type of theology that you typically reserve for pastors that are shaping the theological uh, positions of other pastors to disseminate to the congregations. I mean, that, that's generally my understanding. And so when you say you're a theologian, I go, well, that's kind of like saying you're a doctor. It's like, well, kind <laughs> of. Like I, yeah. I, you know, I care for my kid's wounds and I, I can tell when he's got a fever and I can maybe give him some essential oils that I've read on the internet are good. But I'm not, I'm not a formal doctor. And we have to understand those distinctions because egalitarian culture wants everything to be the same. I'm a theologian. You're a theologian. You know, Wayne Grudem's a theologian. John MacArthur's a theologian, and so are you. You know, um, it's like no, no. There's a different level there. Uh, yeah. And and so there are women that are trying to enter into that women theologian space, and I just don't see it consistent with church history. I don't see it consistent with the scriptures. Um, and it's something that we're obviously, it's growing in tandem with the feminist movement. Yeah. 
Yeah, I noticed that there seems to be a correlation between that and uh, and also the loss of uh, head coverings, for example, as a practice. Um, now, you recently wrote a book on that. Now's your chance to plug it. Um, <laughs> but why do you think that there's such a war against head covering in general? And um, and if that correlates at all with this whole uh, femi- rise of feminism and, of course, the, the women teaching women uh, thing? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I wrote a book called A Cover for Glory, mm-hmm. which is a biblical defense of head coverings. Um, you know, when, when something has been the normative practice of the church for 1950 years, yeah. you know, or I guess it would be, uh, you know, from say 70 or 50 AD or whatever, 40 AD, when, when you're having basically from first Corinthians all the way till 1950, when that's a normative practice, and then all of a sudden it disappears at third wave, femi- third wave feminism, we should really be questioning like, wait, what's going on here? Because did either A, all of the theologians, the Puritans, you know, Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon, Calvin, Luther, Augustine, you know, Jerome, you know, even people like Aquinas, they all must have gotten this text wrong. And then all of a sudden, here in the 20th century and 21st century, we, we finally had the theological chops to interpret this passage correctly. And oh yeah, head coverings are not a part of. They're not. They're. they're a, they were a cultural thing. They're not actually an authoritative, <laughs> creational uh, element of male and female distinctions. And so, yes, there is certainly a relationship between the feminism of today and the loss of head coverings. And when you lose the visual symbols of head coverings that represent a spiritual truth about God's creation order and authorities and glories, we begin to forget the qualifications of pastoral leadership. So if we look visually and we all look the same, and then theologically, you know, women are, are getting the same information and giving the same information to their female counterparts, then why can't a woman essentially be a pastor becomes the question. And so the visual distinctions are very important for uh, this. Yeah, the visual distinctions are very important for the uh, upholding of the order that God has placed between men and women, that men essentially are the heads, not because God has just arbitrarily and randomly chosen them to be the heads. No, but God actually designed men to be more rational, more logical, more discerning, um, biologically more protective, hormonally more protective. We are designed to be shepherds, to have wider chests and, and more lung capacity and the ability to preach louder and stronger. If you read Charles Spurgeon's book, uh, lectures to my students. There's a passage or a, a lecture in there that talks about calling. If you are, how to basically determine if you are truly called by God to be a pastor and preacher. Mm-hmm. And he actually says that if you don't have an ability to project with your voice, uh, that's actually God's way of telling you that you are not called to be a preacher. Uh, because there, this is prior to amplification. Sure. 
And if you weren't able to be like George Whitfield and stand and project out to two, 3,000 people, then God may have not called you in that sense to be a preacher. And that, so yeah. they used to think this way prior to technological advances. So technology has made us, again, more like we've able to become the same um, <laughs> yeah. when historically we are very different. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. I, I think of uh, heralding the gospel. You can't herald if you if you physically are unable to do so. That's interesting. Um, do you think that the rise of the women pastors, the effeminization of the pulpit has contributed to the rise of the LGBTQ nonsense and uh, in turn, even the uh, the decline of Western civilization as a whole? I think when you when we had the move from biblical patriarchy, which was the historic view, mm-hmm. and you shifted to complementarianism, which was a word that was invented in 1988 um, with the Grudem Piper you know, Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, I think that was a step in the wrong direction of, it was a, a Christian version of egalitarianism. Sure. Because it essentially told society that men and women are essentially the same, but we have different roles. Instead of differentiating on one uh, leadership hierarchy and also being, we are actually very different in our being. Mm -hmm. Again, it's not that men aren't just called to be shepherds and leaders and protectors and presiders randomly. We're actually designed to do so. And women are not just called to be nurturers and homemakers and child bearers and, um, ho- you know, and, and uh, have an agreeable nature and a meek and quiet spirit. They're not called to do these things randomly. They're actually designed to, to be this way. And, and so uh, e- complementarianism essentially was the idea that um, men are the leaders in church and in home, but in society, uh, we're essentially equal. And that's a big problem that I have with complementarianism is that, so a man essentially is the shepherd, is the provider, is the protector, and at home and at church, but a woman um, who can't be the protector and the provider and the shepherd of the church at home can become the mayor of the city who is now the protector and shepherd and provider for the city of churches and homes. And and so, uh, or when a man is at home and he's the leader of his home and then he goes to work and then has to submit to his boss, who is a woman, Mm -hmm. uh, or when a woman is submitting to her husband and at church and at home and then goes to work, and has to essentially lead and and guide and guard other men. It's an inconsistency uh, that we, we don't see it in the scriptures. Uh, we see that kings and rulers are men in church history, in biblical history, um, and everybody's going to yell, Deborah! <laughs> but we have exceptions and context and understanding of what was really going on with that narrative. The general normative reality is that men are, men are in these roles because they are designed for these roles. And so there's a lot there and it's something that I think we need to challenge 
the current complementarian view yeah. um, to be more consistent with scripture. Yeah, as I understand it, women uh, holding positions of authority over men in uh, the civil sphere is typically associated with God's judgment on a nation, um, you know, giving us uh, women and boys for leaders. Um, yes. <laughs> when that's the, when that's the uh, sort of historical expectation that ought to be concerning. So understanding this, um, what are some practical steps that men can take uh, in order to sort of fight back against this, um, to reclaim the biblical expectation of gender, both in and out of the church, um, to reclaim what is is and always has been Christ's already. Um, what are some things that men can do or should do uh, in order to deal with this? Yeah, good question. We certainly have this problem happening because of the failure of men. Yeah, and so. Now, we also have this problem because of the failure of women. Hmm. And so this is, this is a, not just, oh, you know, let's not white knight and go, you know what? It's all the men's fault. <laughs> and the women are like, yeah. <laughs> no, it's the men's fault. Uh, and I would say primarily, but the women are certainly at fault here as well. And so the men we need as men we need to be diligent to be the biblical men that scripture requires leading our families and our homes uh, and our churches um, and maintaining a pace of theological comprehension that keeps our wives fed essentially in a way that they can um if, if you have a wife that's particularly interested in theological development and has done a great job being a faithful mother and wife and has the kind of extra time for you know some of the deeper theological realities, uh, which happens for women that are later in life, uh, that their kids are grown, and um, it's harder for a woman with four little children to have that kind of time to find sure. the extra but it does happen as you you get older and your your wife is aging and and there's less day-to-day -day responsibilities um, you need to make sure as a man that you are equipped to shepherd that woman and so that she doesn't have the sense of wanting to pass you up um, but that she is being led uh, gently lovingly patiently uh, faithfully by a man so we just i, I do want to encourage men to step it up. I want to encourage pastors to step it up. And, uh, and then I want to encourage women to submit to their biblical roles hmm. and to faithfully, uh, not to, to essentially, um, resign yourself to a pace that doesn't go beyond your husband. And really, you know, a woman is a helper to her husband. We know this, this is what, this is what a woman's designed for. This is what God has paired you up with that particular man. Uh, Eve's job was to help Adam fulfill God's call on his life. Uh, the idea of a woman having a ministry that extends beyond the shadow of her husband is very, very strange. And so if your husband is an insurance broker and has a big firm and also does a little bit of ministry work to help the poor 
in a local neighborhood. Your ministry should really be within helping your husband in that insurance agency, taking care of the children in the home and that ministry of helping the local poor. Uh, it shouldn't be extending beyond that into your own territory um, that we would imagine Eve kind of going off on her own. Um, <laughs> it would be strange. No, she is there to and designed for helping Adam. And so I just think being within the shadow of your husband's life is yeah. really a good litmus test of discerning if you're uh, in order with biblical principles. Sure. So does your eschatology uh, impact the uh, the way that we approach taking back these things or working towards fighting back against these things? How much of an impact does our view of eschatology have on um, whether we even desire to attempt these things? I mean, my hope is that it doesn't have a lot of impact. My hope is that the premillennial, the amillennial, and the postmillennial can all agree on the fact of this order for male and female roles. However, I think the postmillennial is a little bit more optimistic and has a vision for a timeline capable of it getting better. Meaning that if we have a pessimistic eschatology, and that's just an academic term, meaning that some people believe the world's just going to get worse until Christ comes back. Yeah. Um, but the post-millennial position, which I hold, believes that the world is going to continue to improve by way of the gospel and the Great Commission being fulfilled. And those Christians essentially Christianizing their families and their cities and, and their counties and their states and their countries and their world over you know, hundreds, thousands of years. Um, and so there's a bit of a hopeful expectation that we can overcome the influences of feminism in time. Yep. And so that does give us a little bit more of an edge, I think, on, hey, let's get working at this versus it's just going to just get worse. Feminism is just going to be more impactful and it's just going to continue to influence the church and the LGBT thing is just never going to go away and it's going to get stronger and we're eventually going to go to jail for this. And, you know, again, I, I look at Roe v. Wade as a great example of going, hey, you know what? It got worse and the Christian church stood up and pushed against it and it got better. Yeah. And, and we're pushing harder and state by state, we're taking, uh, you know, we're taking ground and mm -hmm. we're not doing it on our own strength. We are the body of Christ. Yeah. And so we are doing it by Christ's power through the proclamation of the gospel, through the righteous moral law of God. Um, it's not him. Christ isn't doing it by himself. He's doing it through the church and the church isn't doing it by herself. She's doing it by the power of Christ at the head. And so we are, we are working as one. Um, obviously, the credit and glory goes to Christ alone. Um, but we are working together in the sense that he has chosen to providentially include us in the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, how, how are they going to know if you don't send a preacher? You know? mm -hmm. And so uh, we, we are, I think, a little bit more optimistic when it comes to issues like this. But yes, there's, there's an impact. But I think all of us should fight for more of a biblical uh, structure for male and female um, roles and identities and responsibilities in the church. Yeah. So if there's uh, if there's some men out there or uh, 
even pastors who are looking to dig more into this subject? What are some resources or podcasts, books, or other pastors you might recommend uh, for folks who want to uh, learn more about this particular topic um, and how they can, what they can do about it? Yeah, a couple books I think of. Um, Doug Wilson wrote a book called Federal Husband. Um, he also is probably the leader on thinking this way uh, in our modern era. Uh, sure. Michael Foster uh, wrote a book called It's Good to Be a Man, mm-hmm. and uh, I think touches heavily on these topics. Um, Joel Webin has a lot of great podcasts on these issues. Uh, the King's Hall podcast, Brian uh, Sauvet, Eric Kahn, Dan Burkholder have uh, several great episodes that really allude to these realities of the, the leadership of a man. Essentially, biblical patriarchy um, is the idea that you know we are responsible for our wives in a way that they are not responsible for us. Uh, we are responsible. So you know, when your wife sins, you're not guilty of her sin, but you're responsible for it. Um, and you take responsibility for that. I mean, it's the same thing we see in Christ is that Christ is not res- guilty of the bride's, the church's sin, but he takes responsibility for it, paying for it on the cross. And so that's what we see is that biblical patriarchy. And, and he is uh, modeling that. We are called to model the relationship between Christ and the church in our own marriages. And so um, I think, you know, that group of individuals, um, I wrote a book called The Manliness of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, the subtitle is How the Masculinity of Jesus Eradicates Effeminate Christianity. Um, and so I'm trying to bring contribution. Honestly, my book on head coverings, A Cover for Glory, it's more about headship than it is about head coverings. And, and so that was where I really got clarity for this conversation to even start is the mm-hmm. study that I did during my book for head coverings. And so um, you know, uh, lots of great resources to include. I have an article that you could, or you can listen to it, or you can read it on our website um, called like, um, you know, what's a woman's role in theological education. If you just Google that, it's at relearn.org and you can listen to it or you can read it. And I think that brings a pretty good clarifying point, the scripture references to support the position and something to think about, you know, if you have women's Bible studies and women's theology classes and, you know, G3 just recently did women's expositional teaching classes, um, you know, <laughs> we would never see those in church history. Um, yeah. And, and so um, the problem is that it's not necessarily all bad. It's this blending of things where there's gray areas and it's hard to, to separate what's not right with what's right. And it really takes a discerning and careful person to um, figure out how do we bring more balance to this and how do we return to the historic evangelical position? Sure. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, Dale, uh, where can people find you? Uh, Plug all your stuff so people can go find you. Uh, Great resource. Tell, tell, us, tell us where we can look for you. Yeah, relearn.org is our website and ministry. All of our book sales go directly to the ministry and not to me. And so um, if you buy a thousand books from us, they all go, doesn't change my salary one bit. So we encourage people to go and check out our store. Uh, we have a kid's book that I just wrote called Jesus and My Gender. 
Yes. Uh, affirming your child's God-given gender that's been selling thousands of copies. And it's been a huge uh, uh, blessing to not only our ministry, but also I think to the many families that are affirming uh, what the world is trying to deny. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have a podcast. Yeah. As you mentioned earlier, Real Christianity. Uh, you can listen to my sermons uh, on uh, podcast format, Kingsway Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. Uh, is where I preach at, and um, and our school at Reformation Seminary. I have too many things going on, is what I'm realizing <laughs> right now. Uh, we also have a small a small ministry called MailTheGospel.org that allows people to mail the gospel, a beautiful, biblically accurate presentation of the gospel to anyone uh, in the United States and Canada. And so we're doing a lot over here, just trying to serve the church. And uh, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. Just searching around, you'll find us. Uh, search Dale Partridge or Relearn, you'll find me. And uh, would love to have you guys on the journey. Awesome. Awesome. Guys, uh, this has been great. This has been great to, uh, to finally meet you and, and to get this podcast together. Um, love to have you on again sometime in the future. Um, I want to end with Proverbs 12.1. The first verse I ever memorized as a young man, uh, as a boy, my my father always uh, stressed remembering uh, scripture. And so we went through the Proverbs, which I'm now doing with my son. Uh, but Proverbs 12.1 is my favorite. Uh, Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> it's my favorite verse. Uh, Dale, thanks so much for coming on, brother. It has been a huge blessing. And um, I really, really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you, Justin. Justin.